Well, good morning. I'm sorry I'm, I'm not uh, in person with you. Um, apart from that eight months when I kind of burnout and was off um, in 2008, this is the first time I've missed a, a Sunday service in, in 36 years um, in, in ministry. It had to happen sometime, I suppose, but close to the end. And for the series, which is my, my last at, at Claremont, from that passage that Eleanor read in, in Luke chapter 24, I want to think in these four weeks about four kinds of looking. I'm talking about looking back, uh, looking in, um, looking out, and, and looking forward. And looking back for today, now there's a sense in which looking back is not a good thing. Um, Jesus said, and it's in Luke 9, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the, in the kingdom of God. But I think he said that to someone whose loyalties were divided. The loyalties were divided between following Jesus or hanging on to, to what he already knew and what he had. And Jesus was saying that his call to follow was an all-out all call. Um, there was no place for hedging our bets. But there is a place for looking back of a different kind. And there are many times in Scripture when we're encouraged to look back, to remember, to think again. And also, because of God's previous goodness, it's an encouragement for us to keep trusting. Hebrews chapter 11 is a, is a long chapter of, of various heroes of the faith in what we would call Old Testament times, people who have remained faithful. And the lesson is there to encourage the church. Our photograph display, which is up on the, um, in the Sawyer's room um, from this week, is, is not exactly on a par with Hebrews chapter 11, but it's a story of, or part of a story of where we've come, where we've been, what's been going on, things good and, and things bad. And I encourage you to take a flavor of, of that and, and to do that kind of looking back with thankfulness. In Philippians 1, Paul tells the church in Philippi that he'd been praying for them. And he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God, because of what he's done in the past, can be trusted for, for what's ahead. Now that confidence that Paul had, that uh, God's work would not be frustrated, God's work would not be cut off, that's not the attitude we find in these two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the, in the passage that Eleanor read. They were <clears throat> coming, trying to come to terms with the fact that Christ had died, the Messiah was taken from them, and also the beginning of a rumor that all might not be as it seemed, a rumor about resurrection. Now, the problem was for them that when they looked back, they, they were looking back with wrong expectations. They thought the Messiah was going to come and bring national and political freedom to Israel. And they couldn't shake that thought off, even though Jesus had done nothing during his ministry to affirm that point of view. It was still something that his followers believed. It was brought up again in, in Acts chapter 1, just before the ascension. Is this now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were going to get something back, some imagined uh, happy time in the past. Now, I think we're in a, something of a similar position as the, the Church of Scotland, thinking here we are, the national church, the one that has the privileges of 
being at society's top table, that we should have our work protected and supported by the laws of the land and so on. I mean, kind of, can we not get back to that? Can we not look back and see how good that was? Look back and remember the convoy of double-decker buses taking everyone on the Sunday school trip. Look back and remember the table piled with produce at the harvest service. Look back and remember how busy we were in communion Sundays. Look back and remember how strong were the numbers in our various organizations. And it's different now. And isn't that the kind of restoration work that we want? Isn't that what God should be doing? And just as these travelers to Emmaus thought that the lessons from looking back were ones that centered on Israel being top dog, so many today in the church still look back and think, this is what we want to aim for and what we want to have happen. But you know, for me, the question really is, if, if all of that was so wonderful, how did we get from there to, to where we are now? If all of that was so good, what, what happened to it? Where, did it? where did it go? Now, to the two followers on the road to Emmaus, Jesus' response, and it was quite a curt one, wasn't it? Was to point out that they'd not looked far enough back. It wasn't, you've not looked back, but you've not looked back thoroughly enough. And he took them through what the prophets had said to show a different picture of the Messiah. Similarly, the Remember When Brigade in our churches too often are guilty of only looking back to someday when church seemed a bit better, but discipleship, gospel living, gospel mission, gospel evangelism were not much better at all. The issue with looking back at the wrong object of our faith is that we fail to find our role in the present. We put our hope in the wrong things and only tire ourselves out with the false notions about what was good about church. Notions not necessarily based on Jesus and his mission. So what we should look back at is not the times when church suited us, when it seemed welcoming and nice, but when the Spirit of God was at work, transforming lives and, and life. Look back to the striking otherness of Jesus and bring that teaching to the fore. The gospel hope is not a return to what best suited or suits us, but the glorying of God's work and God's mission. In the early church, we see a transformation of the known world of the Roman Empire, not through force, dominance, but through Jesus-shaped lives of his disciples. Could God do that again? Could God do that work again? Looking back and trusting God to work again is the theme of Psalm 126. And we're going to read that psalm now. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Amen. Now, I know that Psalm 126 was written before the time of Jesus. But there's a gospel principle in the psalm that I want to draw attention to, a principle that flows from the nature of God himself and is entirely in line with Jesus. For Jesus did the Father's work on earth. Jesus said, John 5, 
for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. Psalm 1 to 6 is a, a psalm of two halves. In the first verses 1 to 3, the psalmist celebrates the work of God, God's salvation. It was so clearly a work of God, so wonderfully God at work, that it spilled over very naturally into praise. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy, verse 2. It was something that was so clearly a work of God that the other nations recognized that. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The second part of verse 2. There's no other explanation for it. God has done this. God has done this great work. His people were rejoicing and the, and the nations were recognizing what was going on. In Jesus' case, both his miraculous conception when, he's, um, <clears throat> when Mary becomes pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit uh, and the bodily resurrection, they stand like two great um, pillars, two great bookends at either end of the life of Jesus saying, this is the work of God. This is miraculous. There is no other explanation for this. This is not something that's just a wee bit better than the rest of us. This is not something that's come through people working hard or being very clever or anything else. This is God. God has done this. No other explanation is possible. And so it is time and again through human history, when God has stepped in, it's been so clearly his hand, his work the exodus of, of Israel from, from Egypt, the return of the um, people of Judah from exile in, in Babylon, the growth of the church throughout the Roman Empire in the Apostles' time. Say, for example, the revival in England in the time of the Wesleys, <coughs> the post-World War II church in China and so on. This is God. No other explanations possible. And we are filled, verse 3, with joy, the psalmist says. But if that's the case, if God's done this and there's all this joy, why the second half of the psalm? Why verses 4 to 6? Restore our fortunes, Lord. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow. Why? I mean, has their fortunes been restored or not? Could they or could they not look back on a time of restoration, a time of deliverance? Verses 1 to 3 say yes. But why then verses 4 to 6? Well, in our last series, a few times I was speaking about the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. How now the kingdom of God is with us through the work of Jesus. And yet not yet. It's not finished. This is not eternal salvation. God has acted decisively in Jesus to bring salvation to the world. There is release from the bondage and the penalty of sin. He bore our sin. But while that kingdom came and came decisively in Jesus, his followers in the meantime are called to live out the kingdom life, put the message and the ways of Jesus into practice in a world that's not necessarily welcoming of that. And so there is still work to be done. Still service to be offered in an uncaring and unfriendly world. And the call to follow, to serve, to sacrifice, to obey Jesus is what the psalmist might mean by this sowing with tears, verse 5. But yet he says there'll be a harvest to come. How can we know? 
Because, verses 1 to 3, God has acted decisively on our behalf. He looks back to the exodus, the exile, and so on. We look back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And because of what God has already done, because his salvation is already breaking through in sometimes the most unlikely places and ways, we see this is who God is. And so, Lord, we cry, verses 4 to 6, do it again. Move once more. Move mightily. And so looking back is not some act of nostalgia or escapism, but it's to remind ourselves whose side we are on. But we cannot simply look at this and say, oh, good, God can fill double-decker buses again. God can have thousands of donations for our harvest services and so on. Because that is to suppose that our expectations are what should be met, just as the disciples were saying, return the ascendancy to Israel. What the two followers on the road to Emmaus were learning was that they had to rethink their expectations. Not by ignoring the past, Jesus took them to the past, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and helped them to see a wider, a bigger picture of what God was about. The disciples' wish about Israel being restored, or ours about some ideal church in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, or whatever, are both a longing to get things sorted out according to our own preferences, sorted out in a way that doesn't cost us anything. But that's not Christianity. Following Jesus will involve sowing with tears. Is that not what we need to learn? Trust God and step out in obedience. We're struggling to get volunteers for our holiday club, for the barbecue, for the Bible Alive course, and so on and so on. Why would we not serve? Not enough of us are ready and willing to sow with tears. So look back. Look back to the story of Jesus in the Gospels, the promises about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Look back over 2,000 years of church history and look back verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 1 to 6 to the salvation of God and say, do it again, Lord. But we can only say, do it again, Lord, if we ourselves are ready to hear the call to tear-filled service. Let us pray. Lord, time and time again in the past, you have worked, changed things, transformed lives. Time and time again, when things seemed weak or hopeless for your church, you turned things around, and it was clearly your work. Lord, we don't want, look, want to look back to these as some kind of just feed the imagination kind of thing, but rather as a, an encouragement and a stimulus for us to open ourselves to what you're doing in our time and also to encourage and challenge us about our, our tear-filled service, that done in the confidence that we will return with full harvest and even more songs of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the service is going to continue with the hymn, O to See the Dawn. Um, and after we've sung this hymn, if you remain standing, we'll uh, confess our faith together in the words of um, the Apostles' Creed. Um, and then Ian Harrow's coming to lead us in our prayer for others and lead us through the remainder of the service. God bless you.